So good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I um, hope you're well. Um, I'm very lucky today to be joined by Amir, who is investment partner of Aviate Ventures. Um, Amir, how are you? Well, I'm saying good morning. Is it, is it, more, it is morning where you are, is it? Or is it early afternoon? Where are we? It is, it is. It's a pretty early morning. I'm based in San Francisco. It's now, what is it, 9.05. Yeah, so I already, I already had my first call at 8, uh, which was a diligence call and a deal. So yeah, I, I've been up and running. Oh, good, 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 good. So we're, we're, we're a bit of a light snack after a diligence call, I would imagine. For so, sure, for sure. <laughs> um, well, look, thank you so much for joining us. I'm presuming that backdrop is fake. Otherwise, you've got the best office I've ever seen. Um, it it uh, is, it is. Um, but look, before I dive in, um, you, you're a fairly prominent member of the scene, um, particularly in InsurTech, so probably don't need too much introduction, but it'd be great if you could introduce yourself and your role at, at, at Aviate and what you guys do there. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me. I'm excited for this for this podcast. So uh, I've been investing in like the fintech and insurtech space for almost a decade. However, my background, I, I grew up actually in Europe. I grew up in Germany most of my life. I was born in Iran. Um, and spent most of my life in Europe uh, on the operating side, either as part of a startup or, you know, starting a startup and spent time also on the enterprise side as well as the consumer side and had like basically no background in insurance, to be honest. Uh, uh, but I kind of spent time doing my time on the operating side with, with financial services institutions, though. And, um, you know, before joining Aviate, I um, helped build up Minicree Ventures uh, where we kind of were on the forefront of investing in InsurTech, mostly on the product and distribution side and kind of like the InsurTech wave one that came along starting kind of in 2014, 15. And um, with Aviate, we're an early stage fund here based in, uh, in Palo Alto, San Francisco. Uh, we are on our second fund uh, with, uh, with around $180 million as a stimulus size first fund. We are a generalist fund. Uh, we kind of have three kind of core areas that we focus on. One is enterprise, the other one is healthcare and healthcare services, and the third one uh, is fintech, which which I came on board to lead. And within the fintech sector, I think, you know, there's a lot of overlap with these within within those three sectors as well, right? I mean, enterprise kind of overlaps with fintech, healthcare overlaps with insurtech, fintech. So there's overlap, but specifically on the fintech side, you know, I kind of interested in anything that touches financial services, that could be insurance, which is a big part of it, and InsurTech, which we're going to talk about today uh, on the financial services side, you know, very much interested in still, you know, payments, wealth management, credit, uh, credit risk, um, you know, but also overlapping investments I've done within PropTech uh, that, you know, kind of uh, dives into FinTech. However, um, you know, we're very much interested in early stage startups, meaning we're investing like seed, kind of the Series A level, uh, anywhere from a million to five million dollar check, but I'd say two to three is the sweet spot. I think what what you know drives us is that you know we're very conviction driven in the investment process. Meaning, you know, you, you probably see from my LinkedIn and the investments I've done. You know, I take a board seat. I, I mostly have led all of the rounds that we have done at Aviate. So try to build theses that we have or like interests that we have, and try to dig deeper and build conviction around the topic and like really taking a hands-on approach and the company building process, right? Um, some companies I've invested in really had mostly an idea, some some kind of a data set, some kind of validation, but had no products. And mm -hmm. how can we guide them with our experience and knowledge to get to the next level 
uh, of a company. So that's that's it. Like a two minute pitch, what what I've been doing the last you know couple of years. Yeah, awesome. No, that's um yeah, it's very comprehensive, and 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 I think anyone out there um, checking me as background up on LinkedIn, um, if you don't know him already, because um, Munich really particularly was a you know an absolute hot streak on some of the businesses you invest in, um, some of the really big bets and insure and ex insurance and, and many others. Um, but I suppose that's that's a really interesting kind of juxtaposition to bring us to today because, you know, I, I know this is kind of a fairly open question for some of the works in the venture space, but like, how do you decide what your portfolio should look like? Um, you know, what do you specifically look for? Um, because obviously it's evolved over that period of time that you've been in it. So, yeah, now, yeah, how do you make that kind of decision? Yeah, I mean, Portfolio construction, I mean, this is two ways, right? Are we talking about portfolio construction in terms of like how, what, what deals we invest in, what, what ownership we take and how much money you invest? I think that's a discussion by itself, but I assume you mean in terms of like um, insure tech and what I'm interested in in terms of the portfolio, I assume, right? Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> when, when, again, like 10 years ago, when I did my first insure tech deal, um, you know, that was invested in simple insurance, which is, uh, you know, the product warranty kind of play at the checkout. We're kind of the first ones that, you know, interesting enough was an embedded play at the checkout to, you know, um, buy product warranty for your, for your phone or bike or whatnot. And I think, you know, starting uh, when you look at like the history of InsurTech and I wrote like a long article about like the last hundred years of insurance, but I tried to really dig deep to understand like, where do we come from, where are we going? You know, the whole wave kind of started in 2009 and 10 around like, you know, uh, price comparison websites and so on and so forth. I think the first wave into like the digital model was by um, uh, was by Metro Mile and Climate Corp, where they tried to like build like digital products and distribute them kind of like digitally through, through the Internet. But most of the other kind of plays were around like product comparisons and so on and so forth. And then I think in 2014, 15, I think the MGA wave kind of like took off, right? You know, um, I think VCs and like the investors kind of saw an opportunity with insurtechs emerging, such as like, as you mentioned, Next Insurance and like uh, Hippo and, um, and all the others around there as well. And, um, you know, most of these um, insurtechs kind of focused on the traditional lines of businesses, right? I mean, like home auto renters, uh, next insurance went in like the SMB into the MB route. And I think that was the right or like the, the, the easy way in, right? Because like um, off the shelf products, you know, most of them <clears throat> are like uh, very commoditized. And, you know, it was like, how can we bring this to the consumer more friendly and more easily available? And it was the right way to do that and right way to go about it. Um, I think that the, the, the next wave and the way I look at the portfolio here at Aviate and what I'm interested in, and, and you see it from the investment perspective, I still believe like, you know, product and distribution is, is interesting, right? However, my focus has been mostly and entirely on niche or speci specialty insurance products or on the commercial side. And from my perspective, when you think about the traditional lines of businesses, auto home and renter, like the, the incumbents have been pretty okay in what they're doing, right? They might, you know, not be the, the greatest in innovating in technology and having the best app out there and like being, you know, very customer friendly, if you want to say it. So, however, like, you know, at the end of the day, most of these products 
are commoditized are fiercely competitive, right? You know, people decide mostly on price if I want to buy auto insurance from Geico or if I want to buy auto insurance by, uh, let's say, Lemonade, right? So it's all about pricing. And um, I think, you know, the, the way I see it in terms of where we're going forward in the portfolio, when you look at like niche insurance uh, markets, most of these niche insurance markets might not be as big as the traditional, like, you know, markets or flow businesses. However, they lack the innovation or technology, technological capabilities, right? Because we have still people sitting in offices looking through the actual year models, looking through like some sort of an Excel sheet to understand what is the price and so on. So very like cumbersome process, very like, you know, manually driven, still email involved and whatnot. And you can really um, innovate there because help these, you know, um, uh, lines of businesses to be more digitally enabled. And you see it in the investments I've done you know, I've done an investment project, for example, in the collectible space, like collectibles insurance. I've invested in uh, life insurance actually in the UK, which is targeted for chronic disease patients, right? Uh, I think the other one what I'm excited about is uh, home insurance for manufactured homes, right? Uh, it's mm -hmm. a complete different kind of underwriting technology and methodology over there. Uh, the market is not as big as the traditional home insurance market. However, if you can really enable you know, carriers and agents with like digital products, I think you can really take advantage there. So this is what I'm, what I'm like really focused on is still products distribution focused heavily on like niche or specialized markets. They could be as, as little as like $5 billion premium a year or $10 billion premium a year, right? But I think if you can, you know, take market share there, it's way more lucrative than going after auto insurance and trying to build the newest app, if that makes sense. Mm, it makes perfect sense. And it, it, it's interesting from uh, in the comparison to banking, I was at 11FS uh, open mic discussion last night on you know, UX and, and CX design, customer experience. And they were talking predominantly about banking, which was interesting and saying about user experience is so much better in a lot of the kind of like new apps. Um, but the gap between that and the sort of traditional banks is is closed quite significantly. Um, you know, they were fast movers and we were talking about the Monzos, the Starlings, and, and we still kind of people were basically had a lot of love for that in the room. But to a certain extent, someone made the point, you know, at what point does the consumer care um, and do they care enough to swap? And now that's with a product where mostly you're not paying or certainly you're not paying up front. Your banks make their money in different ways with an insurance product, which is completely commoditized that user experience you know it doesn't lead to necessarily profitability you you've got to you've got to grow you've got to scale and, and and that's where some of this kind of obviously problematic pricing of certainly publicly traded uh, insurtechs came into play because to get the scale and to get the profitability was almost an impossible kind of equation certainly from the way that i looked at it um so that kind of leads us kind of nicely into uh, yeah, at the start of InsureTech, when you started investing, there weren't a lot of comparables, no public InsureTechs. How does one value an InsureTech now? Because clearly the mistakes were made. Um, you know, is yeah. you know, GDP, is it, is it the right metric? Obviously, that's for you know, risk-bearing ones. Or, yeah, how does one approach that? Yeah, I mean, great point. I think uh, I have a lot of discussions these days with either investors or my own startups that uh, that I've invested in and how to look at this and what is the right metric to go out and raise around. And as you mentioned, like the last couple of years when this whole wave started, you know, 
uh, GWP was kind of a measure because I think, you know, GWP kind of gives us an indi in, um, indication of like how fast and how, uh, yeah, how fast InsurTech is growing, right? And I think people uh, kind of put GWP and revenue, revenue side by side. And I think the bigger mistake was just to, to think about GWP as kind of a SaaS revenue metric because it's recurring, right? And there's a lot of, you know, resemblance between maybe the recurring business and insurance. However, you know, uh, the, the, the inherent loss volatility within insurance is not really covered in the revenue or like recurring revenue perspective. So from my perspective, you know, GWP is, is, is an okay kind of methodology to understand what an insurance does and how, how the potential of an insurance company or insure tech could be. But, you know, it's, it's not a measure of like indicating like this is a good startup or not a good startup. Because going back to what I said before, I think if you think about GWP and an insure tech that is like in the traditional auto insurance space, compared to someone who is building in a manufactured home space, it's completely different, right? Um, because there's like, again, there's complete different markets, uh, commoditized on one side, not commoditized on the other, fiercely competitive on one side, not competitive on the other side. What is the underlying value of a, of a policy in, in auto insurance and uh, resulting in that the long-term value of a customer compared to the other kind of market? So, you know, you can't like say, okay, this insure tech has... $4 million in GWP, this one is $2 million and you know we have to value it the same way. I think that's not possible. The way I look at it is like, what is the overarching market here, right? And going back to what I'm interested in investing, right? Uh, how big is this in market in, in general in terms of GWP? Let's, let's talk about manufactured homes, right? It's kind of a $10 billion premium market every year and you know actually growing because like, you know, manufactured homes are more and more interested in the US, people are interested in, in like living in, in these kind of communities. So it's it's growing nicely and steadily, but it, it, it it's not like the, the $80 billion or $100 billion traditional home insurance market. So you can't compare these two with each other, right? Mm -hmm. But when I think about the, the the manufactured home insurance market, like, and think about an insure take that is building there, I'm trying to understand you know, who are the competitors? Like how many competing entities are working in, in this in this kind of environment? Is there any digitization already happening? Is there any like, you know, innovation happening? Or, you know, what is the process right now to get insurance? How are customers thinking about insurance in that in that sense? What is the underlying value of a policy if, if a customer buys this? Are this is it the long term, short term? You know, is there a lot of again going back competitors that people might switch to? you know, and so on and so forth. So when you put all of these together and think about GWP uh, as a measure, you have to think about how fast and how big can this insure tech grow uh, to, to, to make a valuation assessment, right? So these are the things that I look for when I think about, you know, the measurement. And I always also tell my startups that have, that have invested in the seed stage that are now thinking about a series A, it's about like, again, it's not about GWP because like, it doesn't matter if you have 5 million, 10 million, if your underlying unit economics don't line up, it doesn't matter, right? So, because if you're spending $5 to get $4 in, something is not right, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. it, and it, again, it will not get better over time because as you know, you know, building a book of business, uh, once you have it, it's really hard to change it. And it's really hard to like, you know, make it profitable over time. So it, it's better to grow slowly 
and you know convince the market with like hey i have a better technology i have a better product for you right i make it more seamless for you and that's how i can you know grab market share over time from the incumbents that are basically either sleeping or not innovating in in that sense right and that's how i value and how how i see how an insurtech in these markets can grow and be a lucrative business right <clears throat> is because that's it sounds like a very sensible way of put together valuation um but valuations that consensus matters in investment uh why well i i would I, that would be my conjecture because that sets the market price that's that's what sends things out of control that's that's what sends kind of investment markets into a kind of dicey place when things are overinflated um but how important do you you know that's from a very uneducated view on it but how important is kind of a market-wide consensus for getting kind of accurate business valuations because clearly when it goes wrong it it sends it into a bit of a spiral yeah absolutely i mean like think about it the last couple of years have been just insane honestly like i mean there was i think the only consensus was like it's up to the right right <laughs> so you know <laughs> I, see, I see i saw i saw startups and i'm still like thinking about it today pitching me seed stage, you know, idea, really ideas, not even like a product that they haven't sold and wanted to have a hundred million dollar pre-money valuation just because the consensus in the market was like, hey, we're growing, everything is growing. So if I have a hundred now, I can get to a billion, right? And I think the consensus now in the market is like, hey, you know, these valuations, you know, didn't make sense, right? It's, it's reflected in the public markets. Uh, and, you know, reflected also for the insure techs, right? I mean, some of them went to market at like five to $6 billion enterprise value. And to date, I, I, I said it back in the days and I said it today, I never understood why, right? Even, even if you take GWP as a measure, like it was like 20 or 30, 40 X on GWP and compared to the incumbents that are trading at like maybe two times book value if, if, if they're like really uh, good. So I think consensus is like more driven from investment perspective of where this can go. But right? I think that's where the consensus is. Like look at an insure tech and I think about it like, hey, can these can this company be a five hundred million dollar enterprise value company? And if so, what are the metrics that he or like that company has to achieve to get there? Right. And it goes back to like, you know, what is what and what market are they are they acting in? How competitive is that market? Mm -hmm. commoditized differentiated product the loss ratio of the specific market and you know i think most importantly how do customers make buy decision what are distribution channels because most of these insure techs that are not public the distribution channel was like you know b2c right and it, it's like cac heavy like you know you have to spend most of your money to acquire customers most of these customers are not profitable you know long-term value is not really given right so all of these things come into play that you know determine uh you know what what the insure tech is valued at the end of the day but you know when you think about again these these niche markets specifically manufactured home insurance right i mean the, the market just for manufactured home insurance might be 10 billion right so for, for my company or for any other company to be valued more than 10 billion is already like you know that makes not really much sense but other others would argue, and I would argue probably too, if you can grab the, the majority of that market share and actually branch into other sorts of insurance, such as like maybe boat insurance or motorcycle insurance or whatever, like have like build a book of business, you might be eventually 
valued more than that. But I, I think about the overall market value and how a company can, you know, achieve that or, you know, get like some sort of a uh, high valuation over there. And so going back to that market, if, if there is a Series A company in, in that market and gets like a 300 million pre-money valuation, you know, I would be concerned. I'd be like, okay, mm -hmm. that really doesn't make sense. I mean, we have seen it over the last years, right? People got like Series A's at the 300, Series B's at like 500 to a billion. Right, we're like, it's like, okay, how how does that work? How does it fit together? Mm, mm. Yeah, no, there was a lot of uh, eyebrows raised at, at some of these valuations, um, from, from certainly from my perspective. Um, but you, you sometimes just assume that people know something you don't, and then you think, no, that some things have just got a little bit crazy and out of control. Um, I know, you know, you were very kind to jump on a call prior to this, so we, we could get to know each other slightly better. And, and, and a particular focus of yours that you were talking about was uh, the LATAM market. So really interested yep. to sort of, you know, you've been diving into that market quite deeply. You know, what's really interesting that's happening with insure tech activity in, in LATAM at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been looking to this market for quite some time. And over the last kind of six, seven months, even more, as I've interacted with a couple of companies that I'm that I was excited about. Um, I think in general, you know, when you think about the LATAM market, you know, there is uh, around so far, I think around 500 million invested so far in LATAM and around over 400 companies. Uh, Brazil seems to be like the largest market, uh, given also the growth of the country with around like 200 million population. but. Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, Chile are to follow there as well. However, there is a lot of like pre-seed and seed activity in, in, in that market, right? Very, very few like, you know, mature companies that are serious being onwards. And um, I think, you know, in general, when you think about LATAM and why InsureTech is interesting, I mean, insurance penetration is very low overall, right? And however, like, I mean, I think around $150 billion insurance premiums are written uh, in LATAM, like kind of 50-60 split between PNC and Life. And, you know, th there is a lot of opportunity to not only grab market share and like go for people who don't have insurance, but also like closing the protection gap, which we can talk about a little bit more as well. But sure. some exciting developments that are that are happening there that I think are fueling the growth for InsurTech over there is um, one of what I've learned is like there is an evolution of open insurance similar to open banking initiative in Europe that is that is that is there like you know open data sharing among organizations and like making you know more access or enabling access to information which includes pricing and the goal is uh, eventually like to provide better products and services to the digital ecosystem and I think another kind of um, exciting topic there too is that some countries within LATAM, I think Brazil, Mexico, and Chile um, have kind of created like a regulator, regulatory sandbox for, for insurtechs where they enable them to, you know, go to market quicker, right? Um, that's kind of an exciting thing. And I think overall, you know, the, 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 the low insurance penetration has a couple of, you know, different um, topics associated with it, right? One is obviously affordability, right? Um, financial inclusion, most of the time unawareness, um, a lot of times actually, and that's where I think the exciting thing is for, for LATAM is unease of buying insurance products because everything is still like very manual, old school driven within LATAM. Um, and also like, you know, regulatory imperfections and the mistrust of insurers are reasons too that, you know, people have not bought insurance. 
However, another like, you know, thing that, you know, makes insurance interesting in LATAM is that the demographic is changing, right? Um, the, the demographic of the middle class is changing. I think 30% uh, of the of the demographic is now middle class, and basically, you know, they they kind of. Uh, I was talking to a bunch of people. They kind of resemble what you and I want in, in in Europe or in the U.S. Right? They want, you know, financial inclusion. They want financial security. They look for like investments. They look for like how to live a better life and so on and so forth. And you know, they have also a little bit more purchasing power, and um, because they have more available income more access to education towards insurance. And obviously, you know, the, the technology is pushing them also to like, hey, you know, buying insurance is a good thing. Um, but, you know, and the other, the fourth thing I think the interesting thing is too, is that, you know, as in many other industries and con uh, uh, continents, communication flow is growing and people have more awareness, right? And one thing that happened to all of us, obviously, but affected a lot of those, you know, developing markets is COVID, right? COVID kind of kind of was a awakening process for a lot of people of like, hey, you know, I, I have to maybe change my, change my mindset, be prepared differently for the future, uh, think about how to save money. And, you know, a, a lot of people in that time are very like family oriented as well. Right. Uh, I actually, you know, as I mentioned, I was born in Iran and Iran in the Middle East and also very family oriented. So you think about like, how can I protect my family? Mm -hmm. How can I make it safe if I'm not there anymore? And so insurance is like kind of like an uh, interesting angle to that. Um, but, you know, I think these are like the things that are very interesting and happening in terms of insurance and insure tech. Um, but I think we're just at the beginning when you think about uh, LATAM and other kind of developed markets, right? Um, LATAM is like, I would say at least 10 to 15 years behind, right? And I see it in also in, in terms of like, what is what is being built in InsurTech uh, within within LATAM, right? A lot of things are um, around um, enabling and collaborating with insurers and intermediaries, right? I think 40 to 50% of the InsurTechs are doing that. 40% are uh, dedicated to digital distribution. That might be anything from like, um, you know, product comparison websites to, maybe you know building an mga and then 10 percent are really working on like new business models and being a full stack carrier actually so mm -hmm. it's it's um you know these are the things that that makes it exciting for that time yeah. talking about that kind of being behind um i think that's kind of interesting because obviously there's a kind of blueprint in front of them from other kind of slightly more developed insurance yep. um, ecosystems because my understanding is LATAM is very dominated by agents and brokers still, isn't it? Is that still the case? That's right. Uh, That's right. That's right. Is, is that why uh, B2C specifically is a, is a challenge in that in that area? Is, is, is that why there's not the uptake there? That's one appetite, but I think it goes back to like, you know, um, what I said before with like, um, I think cultural differences as well and like the tight-knit community of like trusting each other, I feel. And I, again, it's it's the same for me as a Middle Eastern guy who like also grew up in Europe. Like a lot is based on trust and how you perceive someone, right? So the cultural thinking is different there uh, in Latam, and 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 I've seen it. And everything is based on trust and relationships, right? And mm -hmm. it's actually interesting because I feel uh, I've seen it in other countries and continents before, even in Europe, right? I mean, um, I've worked with a large carrier in 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 Eastern Europe. And when I when I was working with them, I was surprised because I mean, Eastern Europe, you know, developed market like you know, digitally savvy, young population, 
and still 90% of the business was driven through brokers and agents, right? I mean, they were like, no, but nobody buys anything online here so far. And that was actually just four years ago, right? And so I think, you know, uh, it's all about the relationship-based business. And that's why B2C is hard to sell. And one interesting fact, actually, um, when I started my, my journey to understand the Latin market better, I spoke to a bunch of startups. And one, you know, still like in my mind, and I asked them like, why, why, why is BTC not working? And I was prepared to hear a complete different uh, uh, answer, but he was like, listen, um, when you put a put a put a product online, and then as as we know it from from Europe and also the US, you put your information in, and you put everything in, and at the end it shows your price of like let's say seven dollars a month, and then you buy it, right? In Latam, if you do that people see the price and what they do, they go back to their agents and be like, hey, I have an $80 price. Can you give it to me for $70? And that's how you lose the customer, right? And that's yeah. also another aspect of like the digital enablement or like the B2C, which, which is hard, hard to do. And um, it, yeah, so that's, I think, the, most, the biggest reason. Uh, however, I mean, I've been talking to a bunch of people. Things are transitioning more and more uh, into like, you know, enabling the, the digital sale and like being more like direct to consumer. However, most of the things that are working and will work for the foreseeable future are more uh, agent and broker enablement, right? So you build a digital product and like still enable the agent and broker to sell it digitally. Uh, however, it's still face-to-face -face, or meaning like through an app that the agent has, right? Because the agent has still the relationship with the client. And it's really hard to get that relationship just online and be like, hey, you know, buy it just for me because I'm a mere insure tech one or something, right? Yeah. It's interesting that you're embedded has been the thing that we talk about, but but we quite often sort of talk about embedded only in kind of digital processes. But I always think about embedded as like trying to put, put it into the flow of people's existing relationships with a product or service. And so, you know, enabling brokers and agents is, is Yes, it's, a, it's an over broadening of the use of it, but to a certain extent, it's, it's kind of part of that model, which is you're just giving better tools. Um, on that slight point, and then I'm going to move on to closing the protection cap, because I think that's a really interesting conversation to have. It's just, is there a limitation and, and do you get wary from a VC perspective that if people are just trying to kind of lift what's kind of worked or been, or at least been worked on and developed from in short maybe uh communities in in us or europe and then trying to kind of put it into latam because th does that show a kind of lack of understanding of kind of the localized market um are, are, are people potentially limiting innovation if they're trying to borrow too much from what's happened before yeah absolutely i think you know i always said that and i learned that pretty quickly um that you know you can't just resemble things just because they worked in, in the us they will not really work in other countries right uh, specifically in Latam, and uh, again, given that you know um, the, the mindset is just different, there's cultural differences, the language barriers. I mean, that you can, might be be able to overcome. However, uh, and I was just talking to someone today about it as well. Insurance incumbents itself uh, themselves are like lacking technology innovation, right? So in Latam, it's not that like the the incumbents are so at the forefront. They still have a lot of legacy systems that are even way more behind than what we see in in US or or in Europe. So they are not really you know um, uh, working on that as well. Um, so you know just putting just taking one example and deploying it somewhere else, it might maybe work 
from a developed country to developed country. But even there, you know, think about it, like people who have developed insurtechs in Europe have a hard time bringing it to the US. Most of the most of the insurtechs that I've seen actually built something in the US and then eventually, you know, branch out to to other countries, right? But that's also not like an easy endeavor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because again, we're, we're, even if you think about Europe, you know, developed market, people understand like the digitally savvy, like, you know, have the financial means and whatnot, but no, it's not just easy, just plug and play model to just take it from one place to the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was smiling slightly because I was thinking, probably been my remit for about the last two years is, is a US company going, we're going to the UK, can you find me someone that's going to knows the lay of the land or, or vice versa? Um, yeah. Cause, cause the understanding is it is very different. Um, in terms of kind of um, the protection gap, um, we had an interesting conversation specifically about parametrics. I don't want to limit it to that, but parametric assurance is, is one way of addressing closing that protection gap. Um, are you seeing any sort of exciting use cases that really resonate with that kind of protection gap issue in LATAM and, and, and who in your interest, in your perspective, is doing it particularly well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the protection gap is, is an issue all over the world, right? I mean, it's not that, you know, developed markets are lacking that, but, um, sure. you know, 30% of the losses, I think, from natural catastrophes have been covered by insurance. And I think the, the most... Um, severe uh, impacted um, populations are the ones in uh, middle to low income countries where actually like 90% is, is not covered. And I think LATAM is a great example for that as well, because, you know, there is a lot of um, uh, agriculture um, activity happening, you know, a lot of farmers like, you know, small scale, like one man shop farmers that are like, you know, uh, having their own operations, but don't really have the means to, you know, buy insurance because from what they get from from selling the agricultural products is just enough to like cover their means. So it's it's not that they wake up and think of like how can I get insurance? And even if they do so, it's really hard to get insurance, right? So I think parametric insurance is really interesting in those markets. And interestingly enough, when I was looking more and more into like, you know, LATAM, you know, there have been a bunch of like um, initiatives already happening to enable, you know, these, um, this, this kind of population that is underserved or is the, where the protection gap is the biggest, right? In Mexico specifically, um, the country had implemented a, a program which is called Cadena to protect vulnerable farmers from losses through some sort of a parametric insurance. They started, I think, in 2003, and, you know, we're going until 2018 or so. Um, and it was kind of, um, you know, covering like really around, I think, 400 million in premiums uh, at the end of like the program. And what they did was like, you know, they the government basically subsidized the insurance for these farmers. And it was some sort of a parametric insurance product, but it was still very cumbersome, right? So it was not really digital savvy. You know, it was just like, hey, if you live in this region and we have some sort of like a weather uh, data that we look at and you were impacted, then you're eligible for like insurance and you have to just, you know, file, uh, I don't know, one paperwork and you get like your your reimbursement within a day or whatever week, but still very cumbersome. And they kind of shut it down. And then in 2018, I think also, interestingly enough, there was a uh, G7 summit, which which uh, launched an uh, in, insurable resilience initiative to 
basically give um, access to 400 million people, mostly in developing countries um, that are affected by climate risk, some sort of an insurance product. And, you know, this is also, again, going back to like uh, how parametric can help here, right? Because at the end of the day, the, the reason why parametric is interesting is because it enables like a quick payout uh, based on defined parameters and, you know, helps those people in need so they don't have to wait to get reimbursed to rebuild whatever they have to rebuild or basically don't lack any financial resources when, when, when a natural catastrophe happens. Mm -hmm. However, most of the parametric things I've seen so far are really, you know, um, focused still on like distributing the product. So they're touching somehow the product side or the reinsurance side or the distribution side. So, and, and take some risk, right? I mean, there's companies like Descartes in France, which you might know, there's Arbol in the US. But again, most of them are like risk-taking entities, you know, which, which is okay, but it will take a long time to get to market. You know, these two that I mentioned actually have, have done pretty well for themselves. But one company that, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about and really like the founder is, is Raincoat in, in LATAM, which is focused on a LATAM market. And I think why, why I think that this one is really interesting is that they don't really touch the risk. They are basically an enablement platform to enable both like, you know, the insurer to sell insurance, but also, you know, um, uh, enable on the other side, the distribution as well, right? So they, they basically just facilitate the trade or like the, the, the parametric insurance trade and don't really touch the risk. And so I think that's like a really interesting model because they've built a kind of um, a technology platform that can enable both sides of the equation where, you know, others that go for uh, building an MGA or a carrier that they might take risk and it will take longer to do so. Um, but I think we're still like, you know, far away from where we can go, right? I mean, uh, LATAM is just one, one of the uh, continents where this is interesting. I think there's other initiatives also happening in, in Africa, in Asia and so on and so forth. But, you know, parametric is a great, opportunity to um you know enable those vulnerable communities to to be reimbursed quicker and better and to build up their lives again after a natural catastrophe yeah yeah we're big, we're big fans of it and, and we've talked about it many times on on, on the pod and we've actually had city off from arvalon it, it was a really interesting business and yeah caught up with them just before christmas and, and, and doing very well and um yeah, Yukar, who recently was a, was a parametric um, MGA that we like and good friends with Tim. Uh, uh, yeah, there's some really interesting yeah. stuff happening because you, you've got use cases that it, it, it is it's, it's doing the job of insurance that we always say it should do, which is, is is looking after people at their kind of, you know, their lowest incident in their lives and, and allowing them to move on. And that one of the challenges has always been that claims process and removing that is is, is such a kind of, obvious win uh, for getting people back on their feet so yeah fully supported um, from here um it's it's, it's also about scalability right i mean like you know parametric products have been a, have been around for a while and reinsurance re reinsurer have been like you know doing this for a long time but most of them were like really for large-scale projects but how can you make it scalable on a small scale on a small on a smaller base right and make it more quicker and more efficient i think that's where you know, uh, technology can play a huge role. 
yeah yeah that's yeah exactly it's, it's, it was, I was always asking the kind of questions like why now and it's just simply put we're in the position to do that now and the, and the technology's kind of distributed at scale um I'm really conscious of time so I just wanted to kind of I'm always interested particularly when I speak to people that work in your type of role what do you see next as the kind of evolution of insure tech what do you think's on the horizon um for kind of I don't know where we're at. Are we, are we at InsureTech 4.0 or is it 3.0? <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever I'm, next I'm lost thing. My, yeah, exactly. I've lost myself too. I've lost <laughs> myself too. Um, frankly speaking, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, I still believe there is a lot of opportunity in the specialized and niche markets as I think that's where I spent most of my time on. Um, there is a lot of also of um, activity happening on the enabler side. Enablers are like the companies that kind of enable insurance companies and either on the uh, data side, on, on the underwriting side or claim side. I think, you know, the claim side, you know, is, is very interesting to me as well. I think there's a lot of opportunity. However, I think uh, my challenges with those companies and enable insur insurance companies is that how can you get to scale quickly, right? Um, because you are so limited with how much you can do. There's like, a, you know, the process takes long with insurance companies to sell to. And even if you can get in, you know, how big of a, you know, um, big of a revenue stream can you expect from the insurance company? So I, I still believe there is opportunity on the enablement side. The question is like in which bucket it is, right? And I feel like claims might be a good bucket to start in because again, if you think about insurance, Right. I feel like there's two or three touch points from a consumer perspective. One is when you buy it, right? And most is defined by most of the time defined by price if you are like in the commoditized markets. The second might be like the renewal, right? When it comes to renewal and if, if the insurer increases your price, you might look for something else. And if not, sometimes people don't even look for price. They're like, okay, whatever, I'm just gonna keep it. But I think the third and really important point where insurance breaks is the claims process. And when you have an issue, how can you quickly and effectively and efficiently resolve it to make the customer happy? So I think that's where I'm interested in as well to understand more. So if any company is building in the claim space, I'm really interested to hear about it. But um, also for any company who's building in a niche insurance space, I'm more than open to you know take a look and, and converse and, and learn more. Um, thank you, uh, Amir. You've, you've opened your door to being bombarded with um, decks, but that's no bad thing. And uh, I've made no secret of the fact that your know, claims, <laughs> claims fascinates me. I used to work in claims, and then I spent the first half of my um, recruitment career ex exclusively working on claims mandates. And it was really, really fascinating for me because none of my colleagues believed me, and they thought I did nothing for like nine months of the year. And then we did, I did sort of 75% of my revenue all year was in the last three months of the year. And I, and I always said, because it was the investment cycle of importance. So at the start of the year, everyone wants to grow. They invest in the kind of either their brokers or their underwriters, and they're trying to grow the portfolio. Uh, but the problem with uh, growing your portfolio is by the end of the year, you'll start to have a lot of claims coming in. You need resource. So uh, <laughs> I, I kind of reflect that on the investment market and, and, and the evolution of InsureTech to say, all the, it was all about distribution, then it's about now it's now at some point it has to come to come to claims and we are seeing some really exciting stuff happening claims um but i'm with you because you know we've sold a lot of people a lot of insurance and we've worked out different ways to sell new insurance and we're talking about yep. new niches um but we need to get better with that claims process because otherwise we're not really moving forward at all <laughs> i don't absolutely um 
Amir, thank you so much for being a guest. Um, I really appreciate um, you being Thanks on Thanks for there. having me. Um, yeah, great conversation. And, and look, hope to hope to touch base with you at one of the events um, over this year, because I'm sure I'll see you at either New York or ITC or something like that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Alex. Really, really like, uh, appreciate it. Thank you. It's a fun time. All right. Talk to you soon.